Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around I aim to help you pass an hour or so by bringing you some of those tales of true crime that you won't hear on six million other shows. Sometimes the strange, often the macabre or unreal, from the shores of the UK and Ireland. I'm as ever Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The one-eyed furry doorstop peeks is here, of course he is. And we're completed by you lot, the wonderful enthusiasts who make the show come alive and keep it striving forward. No drama, but you really do make the show. It's as true and simple as that. It's as fabulous as always having you joining us, which I thank you very kindly for doing so. Take no offence, but Peeksy isn't really too arsed because he's asleep. And I do hope that as the episode finds you, it's an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. So, I'm back here with a brand spanker of an episode after my Patreon break. The latest episode of which, an episode I deliberately entitled The Exploding Dad, is now out and available for supporters. Bonus episode number 51. Where on earth has all of that time gone? It's one of my favourite tales ever to have covered. I promise you, it's a very unique one too. If you haven't already heard it, and that title has wet your whistle a bit, then you can be like the existing supporters, whom I thank very kindly, and new friends, Zamo Taylor, Brendan Fennell, Rachel K. Morgan, Joe Westwood, Vicky Simmons, Jessica Smith, Rachel Horwitz, and SM, plus Jen Durant, Daryl and Leslie Manners, and Heather Ellenberg, who have each opted to annually support the show, and all of who get a shout-out here and my utmost appreciation. The support of each and every single one of you means the world to me. It really does. You also can be like this wonderful bunch and get yourself access to the full series plus worth of unreleased bonus episodes. I'm talking tales such as The Samaritan and the Salvationist, The Rotten Rose of Devon, Predators in the Park, or Maths Misunderstandings and Murder, to name just some of them. Quicker than Amber Heard can turn on the waterworks and for less each month than it costs for a pint. Ever so simply by heading over to Patreon and seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there. It's got the same show logo and all of that jazz so you can't miss it. Or there is always present that link in the episode show notes that will take you right to it. I'd like to also remind once again that some tickets are still available for CrimeCon 2022 down in London in June. And like the guard licking Sarah Connor's mush in Terminator 2, it's looming right up now. There are just a few short weeks left. Where I shall be appearing on Podcast Row over the weekend there, alongside some other fabulous shows. I'm talking the likes of UK True Crime. Lady Justice, Seeing Red, Twisted Britain, They Walk Among Us, Men's Rear, Morbidology, there are no end of them. It was a right ball last time. What a weekend it really is for all, with so much going on. And should you wish to come and see exactly what I'm on about, because that's always the best way, isn't it? Then when you come to check out for your tickets, if you use the unique code ENTHUSIAST whilst you're doing so, then you'll get yourself a nice 10% off the total cost of them. Gangster. Right, we should be right to business following a short word from the episode sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Sometimes we go out of our way to treat other people well and we'll drop anything to go and help someone that we care about. But ask yourself, 
how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? All relationships take work, and none more so than the most important one that you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. Ask yourself, is this something that's stopping you from being who you want to be? There's that something that's preventing you from achieving your wants or your goals, and you feel like you need some help with it. If any of this strikes a chord, then perhaps better help can be the solution for you, because help is something we all need at some point in our lives. What better help offers is online therapy in the form of video, phone, or live chat sessions with a therapist. Is a service available worldwide and one much more affordable than any in-person therapy. And in under 48 hours of reaching out, you can be matched with a licensed professional therapist that's best suited to help your needs. Personally, I found talking to a professional has helped me in my own times of need in the past. So should you feel you need to, why not give BetterHelp a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and the True Crime Enthusiast podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash TCE. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash TCE. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I bring you a tragic and truly horrific tale that I have to say here and now is one of the most horrific and heartbreaking tales that I've covered in my enthusiast days. It's up there in the top five. It's also literally quite close to home for me, for it took place at the start of the noughties only a few miles from where I live. And the effect that it had on people not just around here, But I'm sure the UK as well. Well, really, I'm sure you'll come to imagine that as the episode goes on. Yet I wouldn't imagine it will be a familiar tale to many. It was one I'd always remembered and had considered for the show, and one that raised its head again when I was researching an episode for the previous series. Sometimes, some cases find their own way through to tell. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so discretion is advised here. Please use that going forward all. I've also described events in as much detail as I can do in parts, not to distress or shock, but to strike a chord, and that's what we do here. I can't be any other way. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Horror at the Horseshoe Pass. The Horseshoe Pass, a steep mountain pass near to the town of Llangollen in northeast Wales, is named so for the shape that its road travels around the sides of the massively steep valley it's situated above, which separates the mountains of Llantasilio and Cúrnabrain, and is a popular spot all year around, with many walks in its immediate area encompassing the pass to take in its scenic views to get some absolutely fabulous pictures from up there with its height of 417 metres offering probably the most spectacular views that there is across Langothlan and the surrounding Welsh countryside. Although the pass is a popular cycling route and the Ponderosa Cafe atop it is a celebrated motorcyclist meeting place, due to its winding layout and its steep height, the road of the pass can be a treacherous one, and one that care must be taken on. It's not uncommon also to find sheep running loose on there around almost every corner, due to the fencing being non-existent there, and in winter, more often than not, 
the road is closed from Tlangothlan all the way to Tlandegla due to snowfall or even landslides. It can get proper biblical up there. Unsurprisingly then, the road has been the scene of several accidents where vehicles have left the road and plunged down its steep incline, the majority of them being fatal, and signage is now present along the entire road, warning travellers on it to take care, a reminder to those who have been involved in accidents and have lost their lives. But it's not just for those who've lost their lives in road traffic accidents that reminders serve for along this road, however. For today, on top of the Horseshoe Pass, quite near to the Ponderosa Cafe, a different memorial stands, a memorial to some who lost their lives in what must surely be the darkest moment that has ever descended upon the area. Very late in the evening of Wednesday the 26th of March 2003, a Mitsubishi Shogun 4x4, nearing the end of its journey that night, made its way along the A542 from the Thlandegla side to the top of the Horseshoe Pass, to get to which, as an aside, it would have driven directly past my mum and dad's house at the time, and where, finding a place to pull in, in one of the several laybys up there on the remote road, the vehicle stopped, parked up, and the driver turned off the ignition. After a few moments, the driver turned around and checked upon the occupants of the rear of the vehicle, the four small children who were each wrapped in duvets and sleeping soundly, having been roused from their beds almost an hour before. Staring at them for some moments, he then turned back and looked towards the several objects that sat on the passenger seat of the vehicle, and then slouched back into the driver's seat, reaching for his mobile phone. Scrolling down through the contacts, he first called his sister, Emma, speaking to her for several minutes before he then a few moments later rang his estranged wife Samantha, the mother of his four children, having already ignored several calls from her. Some months before, towards the end of 2002, the couple had separated, very unamicably it must be added, and although 30-year-old Samantha had by that time found herself and the couple's children somewhere new to live, and had embarked upon a new relationship, her husband, 40-year-old farm labourer Keith Young was still allowed almost unrestricted access to their boys, 7-year-old Joshua, 6-year-old Thomas, 5-year-old Callum and 3-year-old Daniel, with Samantha being of the opinion that her children would suffer if they didn't see him regularly as he was still a good and loving father to them, if not a particularly good husband to her. He would regularly collect the children from their school when they'd finished, the now-closed Handley Hill Primary in Winsford in Cheshire, and would have them to stay at the former family home with him where he still lived, and that Wednesday in question had been no different. So it had been thought at the time. Just after 11pm that evening, Samantha's mobile phone rang, and she picked it up to see on the display that the caller was her estranged husband. It was not an unusual occurrence for him to call her often, almost every evening in fact, more often than not wanting to discuss the status of their relationship and constantly entertaining the possibility of them repairing it, although this was something that Samantha was not prepared to entertain. Expecting the same diatribe this time, she at pains answered the call and described much later. He told me that he'd finally come to terms with the fact that we could not get on and that as long as we could remain friends, then he could cope. 
Her estranged husband had sounded sincere about this on the phone, she later claimed. And after a short conversation with him, Samantha had hung up, feeling in herself after this that this might just be a new and brighter chapter beginning in this stormy relationship. Sadly, how wrong Samantha was to be is almost indescribable. I really can't think of a much crueler deception at all, but we shall get to that a bit later. The tale of Samantha and Keith Young had begun when they'd met some 14 years before in 1989, when Samantha was then a 14-year-old schoolgirl. As so often seems to happen with teenage girls, she met and was soon drawn to the older Keith, who was then a 24-year-old labourer and part-time bouncer, with Samantha describing later. He was working on the doors at clubs and he looked very strong. I became totally besotted with him. He was 10 years older than me, he was tall and he was nice looking with blonde hair. Our relationship was a secret known only to the two of us. Despite the age gap, so besotted was Samantha with Young that she started a sexual relationship with him. Despite the fact that she was underage and despite the fact that Young was already in a relationship at the time and even lived with his then partner at a house in Barnbrook Close, in the Cheshire town of Winsford. He continued to see both women in tandem, even when his existing partner fell pregnant, and they went on to have a baby daughter, Ellie. This setup actually continued after this for a number of years, but then, at the beginning of 1995, the then 20-year-old Samantha fell pregnant also, and their relationship became public knowledge. As a result, Young's girlfriend ended their relationship and moved out of the house they'd shared, with Samantha moving in soon afterwards, and the following year, Young and Samantha's son Joshua was born. And following them becoming parents, and now living together, at first the relationship was a good one, but it soon changed. Samantha had always had and enjoyed a close relationship with her family, which Young didn't like one bit, seeing them as a threat to him, and he became more and more controlling towards Samantha once she'd moved in with him, getting her to see and spend time with them less and less. After she moved in, there were also some nights that Young would not come home at all, although he wouldn't tell Samantha where he'd been, with her suspecting other women, and it was only shortly after Joshua's birth, in late 1995, that Young first became violent towards Samantha. During that Christmas, an argument that erupted between the couple led to Young physically assaulting Samantha and spending a few days living back with his father as a result. But before the new year of 1996 had arrived, he was, in the time-honoured tradition as so many domestic abusers do, he was all apologetic, claiming that it would never happen again, I don't know what I was thinking, I'm sorry, all of this horseshit, you know. And sadly, as also happens so often, Samantha took him back, even falling pregnant with the couple's second child, Thomas, in January 1996. And although things seemed to improve for a while after this, eventually the controlling nature of Young that was always below the surface came back to the fore, and the arguments between the couple would increase, causing Young to resort to his tried and tested course of action, violence. Throughout their years together, this then became an all-too-regular pattern. If Samantha gave him any cause for anxiety or jealousy, 
no matter how unintentionally, or even if she were home later than expected from wherever she'd been, or hadn't done something trivial around the house, even if it was something that only he perceived, the powerful young would resort to violence against her. He assaulted her on countless occasions, and the couple split several times, but for the sake of their children, Samantha always took him back after each incident. Now I've said before countless times here on the show, there is never any excuse for domestic violence, once is one time too many, and I always feel somewhat sad that people find themselves in such a situation and can't break free from it. As someone looking into a victim of domestic violence, it's easy to feel, why don't you just leave him or her? But sadly, it isn't always that simple, is it? It's a horrendous situation for anyone suffering it, and what I will say here is that, if you are, you really aren't alone. Please, there is always someone you can reach out to who will help. I'll place a number of sites and helplines within the episode show notes following this. So, by 1997, although Samantha and Young had by this time had a third child together, Callum, their relationship still remained as turbulent, and unbeknownst to Young, Samantha had even started claiming income support by then, because the couple had accumulated some £9,000 worth of debt. It was the same year that, with the violence increasing in frequency and severity, Samantha and the three children had finally fled to a woman's refuge for a period, where, severely depressed with her life, Samantha took an overdose of paracetamol and had to be rushed to hospital, where only swift medical intervention saved her life. She returned back to Young and the family home shortly after this, and in a period of calm in their relationship, to try and maintain this, they agreed to try for a fresh start somewhere. And so the couple and their three sons moved to a house, remaining in Winsford, but now moving to number 36, Littler Lane. Sadly, although following their move for a brief period, things were good enough between her and Young for Samantha to fall pregnant once again, with another son, Daniel, it wasn't long before the fresh start that so much had been pinned on degenerated into business as usual. The rows continued, of course. The violence, never really gone but merely dormant, had reared its head once again, and Young would still periodically stay out all night without explanation. One night, on a rare occasion when he and Samantha had been out together in Winsford for a few drinks, They returned home at 3am to find another woman outside the house, remonstrating with the couple and claiming that she was pregnant with Young's baby. In the furious and physical row that followed this, Samantha suffered a broken wrist from Young, and Young was arrested when police arrived, called by their aggrieved and worried neighbours. Although he faced custody for the assault, Samantha forgave him once again, and decided to drop all of the charges against him, although they did split for a lengthy period following this, with Young returning to live with his father. However, by the turn of the millennium, the couple were once again back together, and in June of the following year, they finally married, with their four sons serving as page boys at the service. For almost a year, things were good, the best that they'd been in a long time, and the family was happy, but by mid-2002, the relationship had once again sunk to such a low point, the arguments and violence returning and increasing, 
that Samantha had finally had enough, and with the couple's four children, had moved out of the house in Little Elaine, for a brief period staying in an allocated hostel property in the nearby Cheshire village of Weaverham, before in January 2003 returning to Winsford, having been allocated a council house in the town's Cleveland Way. And in this period, whilst they lived apart, the relationship between the estranged pair seemed to improve, although Young had sunk into a depression once Samantha and the boys had set up home elsewhere, and his pleas for a reconciliation with her had fallen on deaf ears. The children still idolised their dad, and Samantha still regarded him as a loving father, as throughout the many rows and episodes of violence there had been between the two, he had never once harmed the children. Indeed, he seemingly doted on them. Officially, they'd come to the arrangement that he was allowed to see the boys each Wednesday, where he could collect them from their school, Handley Hill Primary, and have them to stay overnight at the former family home, as well as the more common arrangement of every alternate weekend. But in reality, Samantha allowed him almost unrestricted access to the children, and sometimes even, Young would call and even stay the night with the family at Samantha's home. However, by November 2002, Samantha, who had long since accepted that her marriage was over in all but name, and indeed believed that by that time, Young had himself begun a relationship with another woman, began a new relationship herself with a man named Peter Lee. Knowing this, and regardless of it, her estranged husband had kept bombarding her with pleas for a reconciliation between them, and this continued to the point where it could only be classed as harassment, so much so that Samantha was even forced to take out a restraining order against her husband. By this time also, however, Samantha had instigated divorce proceedings against Young, something that when it had been mentioned before between them in the heat of constant arguments, Young had ominously made the dark threat and told Samantha quite firmly that if he could not have her, then no one would, and if he ever received such a letter from a solicitor instigating such proceedings, in his own words, things would go with a bang, and you would be left standing with your finger on your lip, wondering what happened. An unhappy, unhealthy situation all around this then, isn't it? By March of 2003, however, the pair had called a somewhat truce, and were amiable enough that one Friday morning at its start, both Samantha and Young had gone to Broughton Shopping Park in North East Wales to shop for a birthday present for their son Callum. One can only imagine the trepidation she must have had doing so, for Samantha had some serious news to break to Young here. It was here on this trip that Samantha, must have been trying to find the right moment to, admitted to Young that she was then five weeks pregnant with Peter's baby. He took it quite well when we were together, she recalled later. But when they returned to Winsford later that morning, a brooding and pensive Young had asked her if she would abort the baby, which she had of course refused outright. She did, however, and quite inexplicably really, agreed to go to bed with him one final time, for old time's sakes, she later claimed, after which Young had left. In the days following this, though, Young had constantly telephoned Samantha, pleading for her to reconsider aborting the baby, and she described later during this period 
at one point, at the absolute end of her tether with it all, telling Young quite bluntly that she had no real feelings left for him and no longer wanted to live a lie. Young, as you can imagine, didn't take this very well at all, and his depression worsened. A relative, who asked not to be identified, said later, Sam was the love of his life. He would have even had her back with someone else's baby. But she didn't want to know. The final straw came at the weekend, when he found out she was pregnant. We tried to talk to him, but no matter what we said, we couldn't stop him hurting, because all he wanted was Sam and the boys. He loved the bones of her. Some people have a very funny way of showing love, don't they? But for the previous few weeks, reportedly in the darkest depths of depression, Young had made repeated claims to family and friends that, seeing no other way, he planned to commit suicide and to take the boys with him. The previous month, he'd even told Samantha that he loved her more than his children, and if he could not have her, then he didn't want the children, saying he would put the boys in the bathroom with the lawnmower. Samantha recalled later, I thought they were idle threats. Keith loved the children, and he was a good dad. I never, ever thought that he would hurt them. When he'd said this at the time, Samantha had made him promise never to harm a single hair on their children's heads, and he'd agreed. Now, these were claims that Young had repeated to others over the preceding few weeks too, and that's a specific enough declaration that you think, a bathroom, a lawnmower, he must have really considered this. But whoever thinks that someone claiming to be prepared to do such absolutely unimaginable actions really will ever carry them out to their own children. It must go through everyone's mind at some point, however briefly when you hear things like this, that these are just that, idle threats. But by Friday the 21st of March 2003, Keith Young had finally hit upon his plan of action. Early that morning, he found new homes for his two dogs and then contacted his solicitor, transferring ownership of his little Elaine house into the name of his sister. He even rang Samantha, once again professing his love for her, although by that time, as we've heard, this was a very one-sided conversation. He also arranged with a confirmation during this call that he would collect the children from school that coming Wednesday as per their agreed arrangement, to which he'd not objected. He'd spent the rest of that weekend alone at home, had worked as usual on the Monday and the Tuesday, and that Wednesday morning, the 26th of March 2003, he'd called around to the house in Cleveland Way early and collected Daniel from Samantha, spending the day with his son before collecting the three older boys from school. At some point during that mid-morning, Young visited a shop near to him, John Moores of Winsford Convenience Stores on Delamere Street, and bought pies for him and Daniel for lunch, as well as sweets for the other boys for when they got home. But it was remarked upon later that here, Young was not his usual self, for where he would usually have a bit of a laugh and a joke with the assistants there, who knew both he and Samantha well, that morning he seemed to be in a sombre mood. When one assistant, Sheila Langley, asked him how he was before he left, he simply replied without a smile, Yeah, I'm getting there. 
A few hours later, Samantha herself also came into the shop and told Sheila, I've got a bit of peace today. Keith's got the boys. It was remarked to her then that Keith had indeed been in earlier that day with Daniel, and off Samantha went about her day. Her day's peace had continued right up through to the evening, where at about 11pm, Keith had telephoned her. He'd sounded lucid and fine during this call, and sincere when he'd admitted to her that he'd finally accepted that their relationship had finally come to an end, imploring to her that as long as they could remain civil and on friendly terms, then he could cope with that. And for the briefest of times following the call, Samantha had allowed herself to believe that maybe, just maybe, they could move onwards for the sake of the boys. They may even remain at least on civil, perhaps even friendly terms. It was probably the cruelest act you could imagine this, however, for just over an hour later, that belief was shattered beyond repair for Samantha in what must be the most unimaginable way, when her phone rang once again, the caller this time being her panicked sister-in-law Emma, who warned Samantha that Keith had only moments before rung her and had told her calmly, Don't tell Sam, but she'll not see the lads again. Something telling Emma that her brother was deadly serious here. She'd pleaded with him to explain what he meant, but he'd rung off, and even though she'd tried calling him back, he wouldn't pick up. Emma had then immediately rung her sister-in-law. Now, what must go through your mind in such a situation, the panic and pure fear you must feel, you can't even begin to think of, can you? I wouldn't even want to try, and I would hope that anyone listening never has to. After getting off the telephone with Emma, Samantha immediately rung her estranged husband, who at first failed to answer. After some 15 minutes of desperately calling him, he eventually answered by saying, Fuck off and save your breath. When Samantha asked him where he was, he told her that she didn't need to know, but he confirmed to her that the boys were in the jeep with him. When Samantha told Young that she would contact police if he didn't return them to her right that second, he told her chillingly that it didn't matter if she did call police. In fact, she could call who she wanted because they'd never find him and the children and even by the time that they did, it would be far too late. He then rang off. When he wasn't answering once again after several attempts, a frantic Samantha contacted Cheshire Police telling them in a state of panic what had occurred and giving them Young's car details and registration, as well as several possible addresses where he might be with the children. At the same moment as Samantha was doing this, some 40 miles away, Keith Young, meanwhile, glanced over to the objects that lay on the passenger seat of the Mitsubishi and picked two of them up, one of them being one of the couple's wedding photographs, and the other a solicitor's letter from the previous year informing him that Samantha had initiated divorce proceedings. Staring hard at both of these for several minutes, ignoring the constant ringing of his mobile from Samantha and Emma in turn, he then turned his attention to the other object that remained on the passenger seat. A petrol-driven lawnmower, which he then checked once again was filled with fuel, and then started up in the confined space of the vehicle. Now that's undoubtedly the stuff of nightmares already, isn't it? 
But Jung's next actions were even more callous beyond belief, even more callous than only a couple of hours before, going through the whole pretense that he'd come to terms with this split and giving Samantha hope of moving on. Now, Jung once again telephoned Samantha, frantically answered the call immediately, but then woke his eldest son, Joshua, and handed him the mobile phone in the fume-filled vehicle, telling him, Say goodbye to your mum, and tell her you love her. Heartbreakingly, unable to fathom what was going on, the frightened little Joshua obeyed. No words. There are simply no words, are there? By now, although you cannot really comprehend how that must feel, the only description I could estimate really is frantic. Samantha asked her eldest son desperately if he knew where they were, or if he could see anything that may allude to her to where they were if not, but he could only reply to her, It's too dark, it's too smoky. Taking the phone back off his son, Young then asked Samantha, Can you hear the mower? To which she screamed yes, and then added, Can you hear your children? To which she also screamed yes before the call ended. Following this, Samantha had once again rung Cheshire Police, by now hysterical, but officers had already responded to Samantha's earlier call, and were shortly afterwards at her house, joined shortly afterwards by her brother Stephen. Control room operatives from the force, meanwhile, employed high-tech equipment to try to pinpoint and triangulate the area that Young was calling her from, desperately trying to find them. Shortly after they'd arrived, Young called Samantha once again, this time saying venomously, Can you hear their moans? Is it worth it? Are you hurting? Samantha asked him once again, pleadingly, to tell her where he was, and told Young that she wanted to speak to her children. Young told her if she asked him that once again, he would put the phone down, which in her blind panic, she once again begged him, and he sure enough disconnected the call. By 1.15am, however, Young had called her once again, and as all gathered listened, a spite-filled Young told Samantha, now referring to her pregnancy, I hope you're happy. I hope you have a fucking grudge against that baby for the rest of your life. In response, in desperation, Samantha now even told her estranged husband that she would do whatever, would even have an abortion, and they could try and make their relationship work again if he just told them where he and the children were, and he waited there for police. Young declined this, saying that she would have him arrested if he did this, and although Samantha told him, It's not too late, Keith, just bring them home, Young horrifyingly replied to her, It's already too late. Dan's dead. It's one down. I've got to go through with it now. I've gone too far. I'll go to jail, so I've got to do it. In the background of this call, over the sound of the lawnmower, Samantha's children could be heard crying and coughing as a result of the fumes filling the vehicle. I say again, there are no words, are there? Horror beyond belief. By this time, police had managed to pinpoint Young's mobile phone signal to the northeast Wales area of the Horseshoe Pass, 
narrowing this down further to him calling from a spot there overlooking a place called, ominously, World's End. And as they'd scrambled officers from North Wales Police to attend the scene, Young had remained on the telephone, cruelly commentating on the development of events. He told Samantha that another of their children had died, then another one, before he said that he himself was feeling sleepy and had had a nosebleed, remarking, Isn't it funny, getting a nosebleed before you die? Young's breathing could then audibly be heard becoming more laboured, and his commentary less and less, but before the protracted silence of him slumping into an unconsciousness that he would never awaken from, Samantha heard Young clearly say, with all of the breath he could muster to, I hope you're happy, this is all your fault. Although Samantha remained on the line and screamed constantly down the phone in an attempt to rouse her husband or one of the children, there was nothing following this, by the sound of the lawnmower motor running. The next sound Samantha was to hear over the still-connected call was some 20 minutes later, at 1.37am, and which was the voices of police officers who had found the car. North Wales Police dog handler PC Andrew Phillips had been the first officer to arrive at the scene, finding the vehicle locked and the window sealed. Smashing the rear passenger window of the Mitsubishi, he inside found the four boys dressed in their pyjamas, each wrapped in their pillows and quilts, whilst their father lay slumped in the driver's seat. The youngest child, Daniel, lay partly over the central console of the 4x4, his head hanging down between his father's legs. Inside the vehicle, on the passenger seat, the petrol-powered lawnmower was still running. Though PC Phillips and two other officers who arrived on the scene shortly after him immediately removed and battled to resuscitate the four children, laying them on their duvets on a nearby grass verge, there was sadly no response from any of them, and it became horrifyingly clear to each officer tragically, each were already long beyond any help, for they were already dead. The bodies of all four young children were taken in an ambulance to Wrexham Myler Hospital, where they were officially pronounced dead just after 2am that Thursday morning. Keith Young, meanwhile, was pronounced dead at the scene. The following morning, ACC Bill Brereton, the then Deputy Chief Constable of North Wales Police, issued the following statement, which said, At 12.20 this morning, Cheshire Police received a 999 call from a woman in the Winsford area, saying she'd had a call from her husband, from whom she was separated, and he was threatening to harm both himself and their four children. Clearly, Cheshire Police deployed resources, officers and air support, to trace the man and his children, and steps were also taken to trace the man's mobile phone. That trace led to the North Wales area, and we deployed all available resources. The vehicle was located by a police dog handler near to the top of the Horseshoe Pass in Tlangothlan. The vehicle was locked, so he had to smash the window and drag the children out. He did his very best to give them first aid, as did other officers who'd arrived, but sadly, they were taken to hospital and declared dead upon arrival. We are not looking for anyone else in connection with the incident, but, together with Cheshire Police, have launched an investigation to establish the precise circumstances. 
Post-mortems will take place today to establish the cause of death, but we can say there was a petrol lawnmower in the front of the vehicle. He then added, In 29 years of police service, I've come to realise that dealing with dead bodies is part of the job. But with the death of a child, and here, we have four babies really, it is horrendous beyond my imagination. I've not come across an occasion where four children have been wiped out at once. I can't begin to imagine how the children's mother must be feeling. My heart goes out to the children's mother. It's bad enough to lose one child, but to lose four is horrendous. The officers who found the children will be offered counselling. As I said before, you can only try and imagine how dealing with such a situation must be. Samantha, meanwhile, had the horrendous and unimaginable task of attending Wrexham Myler Hospital later that Thursday to identify her four children in the morgue there. And as the broken woman was being cared for by relatives, her world absolutely collapsed around her. When word of what had happened reached the Winsford community, those that knew both Keith Young and Samantha were shell-shocked also and struggled to understand the actions of a man most of them knew to be nothing more than a kind and devoted father. Wiping away tears, one relative of the family, who didn't wish to be named, said the following day, Those children were so beautiful, they were happy kids and they loved being outside with their dad. To everyone else, it's incomprehensible that he could have robbed those little boys of life, but that's what he's done. All he wanted was to be with Sam and look after their boys, but she took them away from him and didn't want to be with him. He mentioned recently that he wanted the pain to end. By then, he'd obviously decided what he was going to do. He'd even found a new home for his dogs. Another family friend, Tom Challoner, said, Keith idolised those children. He used to take them around the fields on his tractor while he was at work. He was a kind and loving father, but he took the breakup of his marriage really hard, and it changed him. He loved his kids so much and couldn't cope with not seeing them every day, so he sank into a fog of depression. I said to him only the other night, You're not going to do anything stupid, are you, Keith? He didn't say anything, but just raised his eyebrows. There's nothing that can be done to change anything, but we'll all be here for Sam now. She's going to be devastated. Her whole life has been ripped away from her in one stroke. I just can't understand why Keith would do this to her and himself. It's the most unbelievable tragedy. I wish there was something I could have done. Post-mortem examinations that were performed by a home office pathologist that Thursday revealed no other injuries to any of the vehicle's occupants and found that all five of the vehicle's occupants had died as a result of carbon monoxide poisoning caused by the fumes from the petrol-driven lawnmower that had been turned on inside the vehicle. Searching for any scant consolation amongst such an abhorrent act, the pathologist also added that alongside no signs of physical force present on the children's bodies, that the boys would not have suffered much, as they would have rapidly become drowsy and would have simply fallen back asleep. A sleep that they would never have awoken from, though. The funeral service for Joshua, Thomas, Callum and Daniel Young, which was attended by hundreds of mourners, 
was held on Friday the 4th of April 2003 at St John's Church in Winsford, where each of their tiny white coffins, complete with a photograph of each child placed atop them, were carried into the church by bearers, followed by a distraught Samantha and other members of the children's family. Once inside, all things bright and beautiful, the boys' favourite hymn, and a song that they'd each loved, the Gareth Gates track, Any One of Us, Stupid Mistake, were played. Before an moving tribute to them, several speakers gave addresses to the congregation, including the children's headteacher from Handley Hill School and Nursery, Gillian King, who spoke warmly of the boys and who recounted several school memories of the older brothers. The funeral of Keith Young, meanwhile, had taken place separately on the previous day at St Mary's Church in the village of Whitegate near Northwich, attended by only a handful of people, with many people who would, in any other circumstances, have attended, feeling unable to, still trying and failing to come to terms with his dreadful actions. Sadly, they were to be actions that were even further reaching, as, as a result of the trauma that she'd endured, Samantha was to only a short time later miscarry the baby that she and Peter were expecting. On Tuesday the 16th of September 2003, the inquest into the deaths of all five was held in Wrexham Coroner's Court, where North East Wales Coroner John Hughes heard details of the post-mortem findings and the resulting police investigation including a full recount of the conversations that were held in the chilling telephone exchanges that morning between Keith Young and Samantha. Also given was witness testimony from the first officer to arrive at the scene, PC Andrew Phillips, who recounted to the inquest, I smashed the rear and the front passenger window, for I was very concerned about the health of the occupants inside. I had requested urgent assistance, and as I released the door's central locking, the doors came open and a young boy fell from the rear car well where he must have been wedged onto my feet. The body still felt hot and I thought he might be alive, he added. PC Phillips then described the ill-fated efforts of he and two other officers who had soon arrived afterwards to resuscitate the children, his emotional account showing that even six months later just how visibly shaken he still was by the events. Mr Hughes told him, somewhat supportively, I believe people do not appreciate the work police officers have to do. They ought to hear about your activity that night and the way you behaved. You tried your absolute best. I'm sure the families of both sides concerned want to say thank you. Although it didn't work, nevertheless, you tried your best. Keith Young's sister, Susan Redmond, and his brother, John Young, had both earlier described to the inquest how the death of both their mother and grandmother in the space of two weeks in 1990 had been a massive blow from which Keith Young had never really recovered. Mrs Redmond in particular recalled a visit with him to their mother's grave only some weeks before the murders and told the court. He said then that he was going to kill himself and his boys. He was in floods of tears there. He said that his mother was waiting in heaven for them. Mr Hughes said on record that Keith Young had actually told at least eight of his friends, family and even former girlfriends what he might do, what he was considering doing, but that no one had taken Young's threat seriously, adding, 
He repeatedly talked of taking his own life and taking the children with him. Those who heard the threat didn't think for one second that he was going to do it. The last thing you would expect a doting father to do would be to harm his children. Now I was impressed with such heartfelt words because you would kind of expect a coroner to always be clinical and formal and have no emotion whatsoever, don't you? And sadly, his latter sentence here, that's true, isn't it? Because things like this, they shouldn't ever happen. They shouldn't because who can even imagine something so horrendous? But sadly, as we know, they do. Recording four counts of unlawful killing and one of suicide as Samantha Tolly, for she'd long since reverted to using her maiden name, broke down in tears as these verdicts were delivered, Mr Hughes told the court, speaking from the heart, Nothing in this life can prepare you for the death of a child. When a child dies, the effects of it are far-reaching. It affects the parents, it affects the families, it affects friends, and it affects the coroner too. This case has been like a dark cloud as far as I'm concerned, which has been waiting there since the day I heard about this terrible sequence of events, for I knew that I would have to deal with it in due time. It has been one of the most harrowing cases I have ever dealt with. My heart goes out without reservation to all of those who have been touched by it. I know there have been difficulties and animosity and things said which should not have been said, but my view is I want to sympathise with everyone who has been touched by these terrible events. Addressing Samantha directly, he said gently, There is no doubt that above all else, he wanted you back, and there was clearly an inability of Keith Young to accept what you recognised as the reality of the situation, that there was to be no going back. He tried everything from the Christmas to March to reconcile himself with you. This was even before the news of your pregnancy became apparent, and I believe your pregnancy was the trigger for what's happened. It was only when he found out you were pregnant that it dawned on him that what he wanted was never going to happen. The coroner then told Samantha that nobody at the hearing could feel anything but sympathy for her. Our hearts go out to you, he concluded. Following the verdict, speaking outside the court, Samantha Tolly's sister, Sarah Lapsley, told the gathered media. There can be no justification for taking the lives of four innocent young boys. While their suffering has ended, their mother's torment will continue on a daily basis for the rest of her life. Today's verdict is merely a stepping stone for the family, who must now try to come to terms with their loss. All too often, it is children that bear the brunt of any breakdown in the relationship between two parents. They are the innocent victims, and in this case, Joshua, Thomas, Callum and Daniel paid the ultimate price. Understandably, Samantha struggled in the aftermath of her son's deaths and reportedly attempted suicide at least twice. She spent hours, night after night, by their graveside in St Mary's Church where their ashes were buried and eventually had the children's ashes exhumed and taken home with her. On the first anniversary of the murders, Samantha made what was to be the first of several visits up to the scene of his son's deaths, up at the Horseshoe Pass, and although it was difficult for her, she did say later that it, that it had in some way made her feel closer to the boys. She admitted, though, 
that she was understandably still haunted by the final image of her four sons lying in the mortuary at Wrexham Myler, saying, Every time I close my eyes, I see my blonde-haired, blue-eyed angels lying in the mortuary at Wrexham Hospital, where I went to identify them. I just can't block the image from my mind, just like I can't get out of my head the conversation I had with Keith as he gassed them. It's hard to believe he killed them just to get back at me for leaving him. I blame myself for trusting him with them, and keep asking how any father could do something so wicked, but no one can give me an answer. There are times I think this is not really happening, that it's some terrible nightmare and the children will come bursting through the door. I miss them terribly. It's like my whole world has been taken away from me. They say the pain will lessen, but if so, why does it still hurt so much? Poor woman, your heart just goes out to her, doesn't it? The boys were anything but forgotten, however, as in the days leading up to the first anniversary, others remembered the boys too. A year on from the tragedy, more than a hundred people, including Samantha, members of her family and friends, and staff and pupils from the boys' school, Hanley Hill Primary, unveiled a memorial garden there that was community created as a lasting tribute to the four brothers. Four cherry trees, one for each, had been planted within, surrounding a carved wooden tractor in memory of the boys, while a plaque read, One is nearer to God in the garden than anywhere else on earth. Now, Samantha and Peter Lee had fallen pregnant once again in July 2004, although their relationship had ended early on in her pregnancy, with Samantha explaining later, I found it impossible to trust anyone, and I felt the only way to cope with my grief and pregnancy was to remain all alone. She was understandably nervous at first about becoming a mother again, even wondering whether she would resent the new child and be unable to offer it any love, but slowly came around to the idea that this new baby, while certainly not a replacement for her sons, perhaps just may be the chance for a cornerstone for her to rebuild a shattered life from, and it was at a 20-week scan that she discovered she was expecting another boy. She spoke years later with touching honesty. I'd been desperately hoping I'd have a girl, because then the baby wouldn't have reminded me of my sons. But when the nurse pointed at the screen and explained that I was expecting a boy, I started sobbing and I couldn't stop. During her pregnancy, Samantha almost lost her unborn child, and it was this in March 2005, and as she prepared to give birth to him in the emergency caesarean section following this, that her overwhelming maternal instinct kicked in, and made her realise just how much she loved and needed him. Thankfully, baby Morgan was delivered safe and well. But an understandable fear of loss still threatened to overwhelm her life, with her struggling to come to terms with losing four healthy children in one fell swoop. So, determined not to let that happen, before Morgan's birth, to combat this with a mix of new and familiar, Samantha had even moved back into the home that she'd once shared with Keith Young and her sons, but redecorating it fully top to toe before the arrival of baby Morgan. It was understandably hard for her to do this, as she described at the time. 
I'll never forget my beautiful boys, but I can't let Keith's evil ruin this child's life as well. I'm taking it a day at a time, but it's hard. There are a lot of memories there. I still expect to see the lads running in and out of the house. When I look out the bedroom window, I can see them enjoying themselves playing on the tractors there. Four months after his birth, Morgan, the brother that they were never to meet, even accompanied his mother to lay tribute to the boys at the spot where they'd lost their lives. It adorned with floral tributes and cuddly toys. Having an extra cuddle from his mum here, Samantha told just how he'd been a saviour for her, saying, When he first arrived and he cried, I found it hard. But he's helped me an awful lot. Morgan is wonderful. When I look at him, I can see the boys in him in so many different ways. Having him has made me realise I can love again. He'll never replace the boys I lost, but I adore him in a different way. If I didn't have Morgan, I wouldn't be here today. He's the only thing that keeps me here to stay alive for. His birth is helping me to deal with my grief. Now, also in 2005, it was reported that the year before, at the cost of £700, raised between staff at the Wrexham Myler Hospital and friends and family of Samantha Tolly, a 14-inch slate plaque had been created to be mounted on a 4-foot by 3-foot stone to be affixed at the spot where the boys died as a lasting memorial to them. A plaque adorned with a picture of the boys that if you head over to the show's Instagram page, it's reproduced there, next to an engraving of their beloved tractor, and above the words, In loving memory of our special boys, Joshua, Thomas, Callum and Daniel. Love and miss you, mum, nana, grandad and family. Poignant and a nice enough touching tribute, yes? However, Denbyshire Council said at the time it had told the family that permission would be needed from the Countryside Council for Wales due to the site being one of special scientific interest. A Denbyshire spokesperson said at the time, The plaque would also need planning permission from the County Council and the matter would then go through the normal planning process. Now I ask you, who's going to oppose something like this? you'd have to have a heart of stone, wouldn't you? The Countryside Council for Wales were on board, yet the planned memorial, all paid for and just needing erecting, didn't happen. Instead, a bench bearing a tribute was placed up there, with a spokesperson for Governing Authority, Llantasilio Council, saying at the time that this was due to, I quote, local concern that the floodgates could open for memorials to other people killed on the road. What an absolute joke this was. I mean, how often do you see flowers fastened to a tree or a fence at an accident spot that you pass? And how often do you have concerns about this? This is the murder of four small children we're talking about here. That's the same number that were buried on Saddleworth Moor by Hindley and Brady. That's one more than David McGreevy killed so horribly. And that's one more than Robert Black got life for murdering. Surely something so abhorrent should be remembered in however way much the one person more destroyed by the act than anyone should wish. A simple four foot by three foot plinth. Absolute bullshit like this makes me seethe, it really does. What I was equally unimpressed with were reports from only last month that the memorial garden that had been created in memory of the brothers on the site of their old primary school had now been uprooted and raised over. 
The school had closed in 2009, and by 2017, the land had been sold off and the building demolished to make way for a housing estate. Although at the time property developers Linden Homes were given permission to build houses there, one of the key conditions had been that the memorial garden was to be kept as part of any new development. It was something that had been created lovingly in remembrance and meant a lot to those who had known the boys. However, just last month, as I record this, Samantha had posted on Facebook following it being raised over without her consultation. My boy's memorial garden. What do I do or who do I go and see? Heartbroken. How can they do this and get away with it? No warning to tell me. I turn up and it looks like this. I was told their garden, under no circumstances, would be touched. Devastated isn't the word. A spokesperson for Linden Homes said in response to this that there had been some confusion regarding the start of the work due to a changeover of personnel on the site and that the garden was to be kept in situ until the revised plans were agreed on by all parties concerned. They went on. A new memorial garden is being created, retaining the existing wall and incorporating Sam's ideas, such as the inclusion of tractors within the design in tribute to his sons. There will also be an ornamental tree with a special memorial plaque, four more trees to symbolise the boys, and benches for people to sit and reflect. Following Samantha's Facebook post, the Mayor of Winsford, Councillor Nathan Pardo, after speaking to Lyndon Holmes and its parent company, Vistry Group, weighed in on the issue publicly, saying, Plans were drawn up last summer for the reinstatement of the Memorial Garden. Lyndon Holmes staff are aware of how important this garden is to the Winsford community and had always intended to reinstate it. All involved want to see a Memorial Garden that remembers Joshua, Thomas, Callum and Daniel appropriately. Lyndon Holmes must deliver on its promise to protect their memory by restoring the garden and work closely with Sam to reinstate it with care and sensitivity. Now that was at the start of last month. I'll keep tabs on the status of this and I will update you accordingly as it develops. Let's hope it is recreated soonest to spare Samantha any further pain for the poor woman has surely had more than anyone could imagine in their lifetime. Even so many years on from the terrible events that took them from her, Samantha must still carry that grief around with her, that I can't see how a mother could ever fully lose for the boys that she'll never forget. It's a sentiment that is perhaps summed up best by the poignant words that are inscribed on the boy's headstone, the grave in St Mary's churchyard, still regularly lovingly tended by Samantha and her family. They read, My heart still aches with sadness, the secret tears still flow. What it meant to love and lose you all, you will never know. Your resting place I visit, your flowers I place with care, but no one knows the heartache as I turn to leave you there. How could something like that ever really fully heal, I ask you? Without question, this is one of the most harrowing tales that I've covered in almost five years of doing The Enthusiast, this one is. It proper broke me. It's up there with the likes of Sophie Hook or the Monster of Worcester, this one. And yet, honestly, how familiar a case is it to you? Because such pure horror 
Something like that should be at the forefront of anyone's mind, surely should never forget it. And yet, it really isn't. I have found that when I've discussed this latest tale with people I know, however, as soon as you give the details, the memories start flooding back, and they remember just how horrified such a crime left everybody at the time. Oddly, it seems as though it's a memory that's been placed under a consensus lock and key, and as soon as you say it aloud to someone, it comes flooding back. Now, as I said at the start of the episode, it was one I'd always remembered. I lived very near to the Horseshoe Pass, and it had stuck in my mind, for at the time, it left a resonating sense of shock in the area, but it was one that I'd put to the back of my thoughts, that was, until I came to research the episode Snapped for the previous series, and then it reared its head during the research, and the tale of Joshua, Thomas, Callum, and Daniel becomes one that you feel compelled to tell. How a father can act in such a way, I can only think has to be the product of pure insanity, but as he died alongside his children, no one can ever know, it's merely conjecture. I always think that with the darkest of deeds such as this, that it's a state of mind that no test or no estimation can even come close to. You cannot know what it's like until you're in that situation yourself, surely. I have heard the expression, I love you to death, and we've seen before on the show people whose obsession with another than being so under their skin that it leads them to commit all sorts, but to kill the children to which you were reportedly were so devoted. That's pure horror enough, but to make your eldest child say goodbye to his mother as he's dying, to give commentary on the status of your other dying children, and to muster your last breath and strength to blame your ex-wife for it, saying, this is all your fault. What kind of level of hatred is that? Wicked beyond all belief, it truly is. Spare no more thoughts for the monster that Keith Young ensured with his actions he will be remembered for being, but instead, think of the four brothers who, if in any scant consolation, were together until the end, and the mother who's had to start again from ruins, and even now still must struggle through each and every day. I don't know if this episode being out may ever filter back to Samantha or to someone who knows her, but if it does, then my heart goes out to you, Samantha, it really, really does. I've already been up and paid my own tribute to the boys' memorial upon the Horseshoe Pass, and I will shortly do so as well on a trip to Winsford also. I know this must have been a truly horrendous tale to hear, and you should have tried researching and writing it. Yet I've explained everything in as much detail as I traditionally do, not in some macabre or perverse way, but because I want you to feel the same as I felt covering it, and that's heartbroken. Cases involving children and the elderly are, for me, always the most difficult to cover here on the show. But when it's at the hands of their supposed protector, that's what a father is supposed to be, after all. It seems extra evil, it really does. And I hope you can understand me when I say this, but I want that to strike you. I always write as I would want to feel if I'd listen myself. What do you think? You can as always get in touch and share your thoughts and feedback on the episode Horror on the Horseshoe Pass in the episode thread that is now up in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. I really don't mind as ever. 
I also visited the Horseshoe Pass prior to the episode being recorded, although it was a very windy day indeed up there, so if you head over to the show's Facebook discussion group, there are a couple of short videos on there, though you might not be able to hear a lot of my speech on them. As I said, it was unbelievably windy up there. But they're over on the show's Facebook discussion group anyway, and I'll add them up to Instagram as well. I shall draw to a close and wrap up here right now, but I will be back shortly with another spanker of a tale here on The Enthusiast. I thank you all kindly for joining me here today, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.